This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as he is every week, is Matthew Rushing. And Matthew, I'm glad to see that you're up and about. You look very lucid because I know you've been hanging around a lot of these Orion women as we've been preparing for this show. And you know, those those pheromones are pretty strong. Yeah, it is. They are really strong, Chris. Uh, some reason though, I'm, I'm mostly immune to them, which is, is fantastic. Um, and I think it really annoys them. The fact that I, I don't really pay them much attention. You know, they're, they're trying to get my attention and I'm just like, guys, I'm busy. I'm reading a Star <laughs> Trek book. Uh, don't you see me working here? I'm working here. So, I mean, just no respect. Uh, you know, they're really needy and clingy and, ugh, goodness. Um, Always trying to drag you into their schemes and plots. Uh, and it's ridiculous, their plots. I mean, not well thought out, um, very, very shady dealings. It's just not me. So, uh, luckily they have moved on. So, um, I, I feel bad for the poor schmuck that they are inflicting their pheromones on now. Yeah, same here. Well, you know, someone I think is not a poor schmuck being influenced by Orion's is Jeffrey Lang, because he is hard at work on Light Fantastic, which we've talked about here before a little bit. And this week, we have gotten a glimpse of the cover. Which means, Chris, it's time for another edition of We're Gonna Rate Your Cover. We're gonna judge a book by its cover, because if we don't, how will people know whether they should read it? (laughs) Yeah, that New York Times bestseller list stuff, not a good indication of whether you no, should read a book or not. No. Literary treks judge a book by its cover. Exactly. That's, that's what you need to go off of. Unless unless your cover is sufficiently exciting, exciting. then yes. no, you should not read this book. So, Well, let me ask you, Matthew, do you think this cover is sufficiently exciting? Because I'm not quite so sure myself. You know, Chris, it's interesting. I think I think it's sufficiently interesting, this cover. Um, you know, uh, the, it is a nice piece of artwork, I think. You know, this isn't just a, um, you know, a picture of, like, data. Somebody's actually done the art here. Right. To mix the Noonien Sung face with, with, with the data face to give him that look that he has now uh, after the Cold Equation series. And, um, of course, uh, knowing that he was rebuilding his daughter Lol, who is who is also there as well. And and so, you know, this looks like a very interesting book. Now, now I do have to say, I, I've had a conversation on uh, the Trek BBS boards with, with Jeffrey Lang, and I was just 
talking about some of my reservations a little bit about the book and you know um he mentions really margaret kind of wanted them to really push the boundaries you know with data and just do something very different they're not saying he'll never be in starfleet again at all they're just really kind of pushing those boundaries And, and david mack joined in on the conversation talking about how you know, they really wanted to explore the idea of can an android have a soul, you know, mm. and, and if he does, what does that mean? And, and you know, so and, and the whole question of personhood and who is Data, is this really Data, you know, or is he like a clone of Data now or, you know, all those kind of questions that we get when we go through this. So I think that made it a very interesting conversation when we think about it as a, in Star Trek terms. And it makes me a little bit more excited for this book. Um, so, uh, you know, this cover, I think, really is reflecting that idea of what does it mean to be an artificial life form? You know, and, and, and in, is Data even artificial now that he is so intertwined with who his father was and who he was? And so there's a lot of big questions, and I think this cover reflects that. So I would say this this is sufficiently interesting (laughs) well from what you just told me and that conversation i would agree that is sufficiently interesting on the trek collective the little blurb that they put above the cover image in their story on this said that the cover has almost a religious image to it or a religious look to it and i think that maybe religious isn't the word that i would use there but spiritual like what does it mean what is what is the nature of existence and what makes us who we are even if we started out as an artificial life form as data in that case uh, and i can see what they're getting at there so this does sound like an interesting story sufficiently interesting sufficiently interesting that's the new one chris uh that's where we're, we're gonna have to you know obviously we and everything could be sufficiently exciting because not everything is gonna fit into that mold and so hopefully uh soon we'll have that stamp of uh approval um apparently we now need one for sufficiently interesting as well uh, right it needs to be different from sufficiently exciting because we don't want people to get confused And after the feature today discussing the Orion sisters, we're also going to need a sufficiently sexy stamp as well. That is true. Um, You know, I don't I don't really think we get a lot of those covers Um, in in Star Trek lit. I I think we do that on, you know, literary treks after dark. Um, And most of that is just Char's slasher fic. (laughs) Well, if you look at the comic cover I chose for last week's episode, I did use the cover from the Orion comic, and it's a little bit racy. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm surprised that one did not get a parental advisory on it, because <laughs> yes, you are right. Could it looks a little one. bit more like um, a um, Victoria's Secret Orion edition cover than it did necessarily literary Trek. So, goodness, folks. Um, I, think, wow, we... I think on Orion, that's called Dinesh's Secret. Oh, yes. Yes. Dinesh's secret. Um, You know, what's really weird is she honestly doesn't have any secrets. No, she doesn't. (laughs) I mean, Victoria may have like maybe one or two. There's a few. Yeah. But Dinesh, no, no. Um, So. All right. Well, let's go on before this goes any further. 
off the rails here and jump into the Seeker series. And Dayton has confirmed that the Seeker series will be continuing for at least two more books after the two that we have coming up and uh, has given us a little bit of information about the outline that, as he calls him, his co-conspirator, David Mack, has helped put together. Yeah, this is exciting. Uh, David's already put together the outline for the third book, um, and then Kevin and, and uh, Dayton will begin figuring out what um, their fourth book, what the fourth book in this series will be next spring, it looks like. Um, you know, these are very much standalone tales with respective crews of the Sagittarius and the Endeavor. Um, and so, you know, will the two ships team up again? Um, they say possibly, but they're not necessarily in a rush to do that. So um, this is exciting to see. You know, I think it's great to have something in the original series universe, again, that's not, you know, TOS, uh, you know, five-year mission. So this is great. Um, yeah. I think this is fantastic. I'm really glad they're doing this. Well, and and I would say Margaret must be very pleased with the books to go ahead and say we're going to do a third and a fourth even before these come out. And I'm sure that when these come out and if they follow the trend of Star Trek books recently and they hit the New York Times bestseller list, if if the guys are up to writing more and more of them, I could certainly see this as becoming a long series. Uh, definitely. You know, I, and they all very much enjoyed um, getting to do the Vanguard series. And I, I think they're excited to be to be working with some of those characters again that we saw there. Um, and I, I think it's um, something that they're they're sufficiently excited about. Honestly, Chris, <laughs> um, I, yeah. I know that I know that David Mack and I know that uh, Kevin and Dayton very much really enjoy um this this universe and kind of getting create without some of the limitations you get right. when you're doing exactly the yeah. uh, original series characters. Yeah. Well, so well, and even Vanguard because you know it had become very complex. So I think that as a creative, you're always looking for new ways to express the ideas that you have, and the format of mm-hmm. these books feel like they might be a little bit more fun to write. Maybe they're a little bit more like here's an idea, and we can. We can explore this in in this new, more compact format and mm-hmm. then go on to the next idea. It, it seems like it, it it's a fun project, I think, for them as writers. And so I could see them, you know, really enjoying that. Well, Chris, uh, we've got something really interesting here. You know, IDW uh, had done its limited series and they had given us the ongoing limited series which as we saw then was really expensive but some really really cool artwork came with it um obviously things being signed as well by artists and writers well they're doing it again but this time with the tng doctor who crossover assimilation um and this is going to be released in may now again collectors this is going to be rather pricey i mean the starting price here is 75 dollars with all the way up to $300, $350, Chris, I mean, just an exorbitant amount of money for um, this this comic series. But, hey, you know, if you're like me, you're a huge Doctor Who fan, and you like Star Trek, this is pretty cool. Yeah, it's definitely for collectors, but th- the images that they've shown so far, it looks really, really nice. Now, 
that is Amy Pond there on the cover, like right dead center, right, Matthew? So you're uh, going to yes. have to buy this. It is. That is Amy Pond, uh, right dead center. Um, you know, uh, if I if I wasn't going on a, a vacation uh, in May, I, I might think about, you know, doing this but i i'm just uh, i just think that it might not be the right time for me to be dropping <laughs> 75 to 350 dollars on something like this what what if what if amy turns her head and looks straight at you from the cover chris if that happens i i will buy it <laughs> i thought so yeah um but uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen and and i mean you 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 must remember I, I have met um the the real amy pond and and i have my picture with her so i i you know even if she does look at me i've i've already had her look at me before um so so i'm not sure it's worth a, a 355 dollars all right all right well keep trying but to this, talk yourself out of it matthew I do have to say, Chris, for the for those collectors who really love this kind of stuff, yeah. who really love the comics, this is fantastic. There are six different versions, and like we said, it, it goes from seventy five to to a little over three hundred there. So there are some great categories you can choose from price wise here, Chris. So uh, n- not too many worries. There's also um, different color options. There's uh, a red and a blue series and so and each one of these has a each one of these price options that they have also comes with slightly different things with it you know whether it's uh, signatures or artwork and whatnot so pretty cool um, in fact the highest ranking blue and red there's only 15 of each so yeah, you, you yeah, really are limited. getting something that is very hard to obtain yeah so we'll put a link in the show notes to that as well, and you can go see the images if you're interested. Again, not for the casual comic fan or comic reader, but definitely for those who love Star Trek and Doctor Who and are collectors, I think that these will be quite popular. Well, Matthew, that's all we have in news today. But before we jump into the feature, where we're going to be joined by Dan Gunther, who writes the site Trek Lit Reviews and also writes the book reviews for Trek Core. Dot com to talk about the latest Enterprise book, Tower of Babel. We'd like to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. Audible is the best source for audiobooks that you'll find online. We tell you that every single week, but we really do mean it. I've been getting my audiobooks from Audible for 14 years, so I, I couldn't live without them. And if you love podcasts and you're not getting audiobooks right now, you really need to do that. They have over 150,000 titles available. They add hundreds of new titles every single week, and they have new releases, current bestsellers. They have science. They have history, arts, business, lots of Star Trek books as well. Anything that you can imagine, they have there. And we like to recommend a book every week. And this week, because we just talked about Doctor Who, Matthew, and and the Star Trek crossover that they did, they actually have a lot of Doctor Who novels in audio format on audible.com. And in fact, they have two Doctor Who novels by our friend Una McCormick. They have The Way Through the Woods, and they also have The King's Dragon. And uh, the first one, The Way Through the Woods, is narrated by Mira Sayal. And the second one, The King's Dragon, is narrated by Nicholas Briggs. But, you know, Una loves her Doctor Who. And if you haven't checked out her writing in that area, this is a good way to do it. 
Definitely, Chris. Uh, I myself uh, need to check out some Doctor Who novels, and I, I think this would be a great place to start, especially since uh, I, I love Una's writing, so I'd love to see her writing the Doctor. Absolutely. Yeah, I have not read her Doctor Who books either, but again, because I love her writing so much, I might check these out myself. And if you'd like to pick them up, you can get one audiobook absolutely free just for trying Audible as a Trek FM listener. And the way you do that is go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up for the trial. And you can choose any book you want absolutely free. And if at the end of the trial period, you decide Audible is not really for you and you want to leave, that's no problem. There's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. That's yours. And by supporting Audible, you'll be helping us keep literary treks coming to you every week. And you'll be getting some great books in the process. So go check it out, audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we really thank Audible for their support of literary treks and the network. Chris, it's really exciting today. We're going to be discussing the second book in the Rise of the Federation series, Tower of Babel by Christopher L. Bennett. And we have a special guest with us from the Trek Lit Reviews website. Uh, he is the runner and founder there, Dan Gunther. I'm really excited to have him, Dan. Uh, we've been friends online for a while now, and so it's great to finally have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's uh, really good to be here. I'm pretty excited to uh, be on the show. Welcome, Dan. Now, are you going to sing also like Matthew does on the show? <laughs> well, I couldn't. I couldn't hope to match his uh, talent in that area. <laughs> I just took a drink of water and almost spit it all over the keyboard because that's how untrue that statement is. <clears throat> um, I'm diplomatic. <laughs> apparently, he's like Archer over here. Um, well, <laughs> give me a little, just a real quick rundown, Dan. One, how uh, how you got into Star Trek, and just you know how you started getting into the books, and then of course doing the website. Okay. Well. Um... I've been a Star Trek fan since I was uh, really young. Um, I think I actually remember my mom bringing home a rental copy of, uh, of all things, um, Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I was just, I can narrow it down to seeing those Klingon ships fly past the uh, camera. And I was hooked. Like, I was like, oh, what is this? This is amazing. And, uh, yeah, I watched the original series on... Uh, reruns i think it was saturday mornings on cbc here and uh yeah as everyone else was watching saturday morning cartoons i was watching star trek and um excellent then one day you know i found out there's another star trek that's on the air right now and started watching tng in uh the fifth season and i've been hooked ever since (laughs) do you have a favorite series uh oh man that's a tough one because uh I mean, TNG is great. Um, I always have to go with, for writing and just uh, all-around awesomeness, i got to go with Deep Space Nine, generally. It's, Ooh, uh, there you go. I, yeah. yeah. He, hey, Chris, I think he can stay. I think he can stay, yeah. You passed the test, <laughs> yeah. you can stay yeah. on the show, so, Dan. That or he, he could be just being diplomatic because he knows that we do the orb. Could so, be. Uh, yeah. yeah. If only I had my Betazoid senses... Yeah, no, Deep Space Nine, I feel like it's kind of the series that it was the first one that I watched from beginning to end as it aired. And uh, yeah, it's just always had a special place in my heart, for sure. 
Mm. Yeah, I'm very much the same there. So how did uh, how did you end up finding the novels? Were you just like perusing the library one day, or? Uh, well, I read I had read a few novels as a kid. I think uh, I remember getting Q Squared by Peter David as a gift mm-hmm. from my aunt and uncle once. And I think over the years I've probably read that one about ten times. Uh, and uh, yeah, just kind of whenever I saw them, I'd pick one up and and read it. And uh, it never got really serious as far as like uh, wanting to uh, catalog and do the website and stuff until uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, basically, actually, the impetus for that was um, I know that I had read the A Time 2 series. Uh, <laughs> I could not remember a thing about them. So, um, <laughs> yeah, basically, I just started the blog kind of just for myself as like a catalog of you know, the books and what I thought of them. Um, and then I, a few people started reading it and I was kind of shocked, like, Oh, people are actually reading this. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's kind of grown from there, which has been great. That's great. Definitely. Yeah. I feel the same way. I'm like, wow, people read my blog. What? (laughs) Hey, wow. They really don't have anything better to do. Um, (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, so, you know, we're reading, we've, uh, we all have read, uh, the first book and, um, you know, I know Chris and I both loved it and, and Dan, I know you did too. Um, so just coming into the Tower of, of Babel, uh, and, and, and finishing the story, just kind of overall impression of, of this book and, and kind of compared to the, the first one for everyone. Uh, well... Um, generally I, I tend to really enjoy Christopher L. Bennett's, uh, approach to novels. And I was pretty impressed with this one. Um, I think like we all know how Christopher Bennett is with, uh, continuity and tying things together in, in kind of unexpected ways, which is, uh, always a little bit of fun for me. Uh, so generally I was very impressed by this novel. Um, he also does characters very well, uh, which is something I gravitate towards, being a Deep Space Nine fan, um, so generally I've been I've been pretty impressed with uh, with both books in this series, and uh, yeah, this one in particular I thought was pretty good. Chris, what about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. It's um, I'll see how I feel at the end of the discussion after hearing what you guys think about it. I overall maybe liked A Choice of Futures a little bit better than Tower of Babel. I I'm not sure exactly why. I think because maybe we got to see... I liked the bits in that book about how the Federation was coming together and how the different races and the technologies and such were coming together. And uh, this one has more of um, an, a, an action story with it, with the kidnappings and all the political machinations that... Um, you know, we were talking before the show on the other side of the book that this is a book that you have to read slowly or maybe read twice to take it all in because it's there's a lot of complexity to it. And I, I think that you're right there and I'm going to go through it and read it one more time, which may change my opinion of it a bit as well. But overall, I enjoyed it. And there are a number of nice callbacks here as well. Um, I say callbacks. They're callbacks to some things we saw in the original series, even though in the timeline they haven't happened yet. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, again, Chris does a great job of having callbacks to 
things from Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think that the, the, the strength of his storyline is that he is pulling from the series instead of just kind of creating new things that like a fan would do. You know, he's actually pulled from the series to create situations from that. So like by using the Orions um, and all of those different races that the series itself created instead of kind of just using what you know we as fans might have used if if we were kind of coming up with something and i think that's one of its main strengths Uh, i did like this book i found myself reading it slower than i usually do just because there is so much going on and and like the different levels i mean each storyline has at least three different levels of of uh, machinations happening within it, and so therefore you you if you're not paying attention, you're totally going to get lost. Yeah. You know, um, you can't skim this book and get it. You really do have to read it, which I think is great. Um, but it it does it does mean you really got to pay attention, and so um, and I think it's it's resolving some storylines from a choice of futures, but it's also then creating these kind of new threads that he can pick up for uh, what's going to come next, because we already know he's going to be writing more, which is fantastic. I can't, I honestly can't believe that um, pocket has really put a lot of faith in the enterprise series, but I think it's awesome because this is the kind of book that um, actually means something to me as a fan because it's adding something to my knowledge of of like Star Trek in a way I don't normally have. Well, I think that's the thing that it it, it can mm-hmm. be of interest to Star Trek fans in general because of the fact that it's about the building of the Federation, but at the same time it is very much an enterprise book and that you you I'm going to say you need to know these characters. I don't know if you need to know these characters in order to enjoy the story, but definitely if you know the characters, the story is much, much richer that way. Maybe you could jump into it and pretend like you don't know who any of these guys are. And you can still follow the course of what's going on and the debate about what the Federation should be, what's going on, the Rigel system and such. And of course, you know you know about the Orions already. So it can still work, but it is an enterprise book. Yeah, like it's kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that were introduced in Enterprise. And given how it's, treated by some fans, the temptation might be to just kind of leave that all aside, wipe the slate and begin anew. Uh, but I think it's really great that he's used what's already there and built upon it rather than, you know, just trying to uh, go off in a totally new direction. Well, and, and I mean, you know, when you're bringing in aliens that, again, you really you have to pay attention to the series, you know, the Mollerins, uh, you know, the Mutes, um, all of these kind of races that, you know, just had one episode, one off episode, I mean, and not necessarily mm-hmm. even popular enterprise episodes. Um, you, you really have to have paid attention, but, and, and made it really interesting. And, and I think what he's done here is, is do what Kirsten Beyer did for exactly. Voyager, which is take a, uh, well, for me, Voyager was just not great and, and created something really awesome. He's taken enterprise, which was, good and average and sometimes great and and really made it consistently great um mm-hmm. and made those episodes that you didn't maybe love actually mean something now yeah so when you go back and watch them you're like oh yeah and then they're gonna do this and this and this and so it actually makes it mean more you know in the same way that 
Uh, for me, the Clone Wars TV show made the prequels even better because it, it made it, you know, mean something more. The characters meant something more because I got to spend more time with them. So I right. think that's really great. Yeah, I, I think that in my in my uh, written review of um, Protectors, I said that Twisted, which, you know, the book followed on, uh, on from, uh, was the definition of a meh episode. And uh, Kirsten Beyer really made it interesting and, and brought interesting concepts out of that. And I feel much the same about Civilization and the Enterprise episode where Garros is from. It's just mm-hmm. kind of a very middling, yeah, okay, that happened episode. And, uh, you know, to see the reverberations and the, what came out of that, great, you know, really excellent. Oh, I- God, come on, Archer gets action in that episode. That's not me. <laughs> admittedly, Poor that guy did not never, happen I mean, very the, often. I mean, the guy got his ass kicked more often than not. So, I mean, the only time he got some action, I, I was like, I like this episode. This poor captain needs, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, something else to happen other than get punched in the face repeatedly. <laughs> I, I kind of actually loved that Bennett kind of brought that up in this book. How Archer's kind of yes. reflecting, like, oh man, I, yes. you know, I've I've had dalliances with like three women, and two of them were, you know, playing me. Like, what's going on here? It's kind of great. Yeah, I I love that too. So, well, some of the things that we kind of come up in, and this was, I think, uh, one of the issues that we see in the book was this kind of early idea of the Prime Directive, and Enterprise always kind of played. With that idea that, you know, and, and there's even a quote where Archer says, one day our people are going to uh, figure out, you mm-hmm. know, something, a, a rule, you know, some sort of directive that gives us the idea of, of what we can and can't do. But until then, we're figuring it out as we go. And um, there's a great quote in, in, in the, the book here when Malcolm is talking to his security officer, William, saying, look, we're not out here to – we're out here to explore. We're not out here to police. Um, and I just thought that that was a really interesting idea is that they are slowly kind of moving closer and closer to this, this, this thought process. And you've, you've seen it in Archer. You obviously had it in Paul the whole time. Um, but I thought it was great to see, uh, really that formation of, of what Starfleet is going to be, you know, by the time we get to Kirk. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's going to throw it out the window all the time, yeah. but <laughs> still, well, you know, they're going to have it. He even in the second chapter, he's he's talking and he, and he points out the Vulcans, which was interesting to me because Archer is so anti-Vulcan, you know, early on in the series. But he says for centuries, the Vulcans have practiced a similar philosophy toward contact with other races. It helps guide my own beliefs about the Federation's responsibilities and in interspecies contact. So it really shows how being how his experiences over the years have brought him around to see that what the Vulcans were doing that pissed him off so much when he was younger and before the NX-01 even launched, he starts to understand maybe why there's there's a reason for that. And as he's now kind of guiding the formation of the Federation, he's using that experience and wisdom to help guide others who don't yet see the value in that. Mm-hmm, absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, that's something that I think Christopher Bennett's done really well is shown that, um, you know, these characters have grown over the years and changed their opinions. Um, and I mean, some of that was like the third and fourth season of Enterprise. Uh, but there were times where I felt 
enterprise was very much going the way of Voyager where, oh, these people are just in kind of the same jobs for four years or seven years right. and uh, not really changing. Um, and that's something that I think this book does really well with all of the characters. And yeah, with regards to the Prime Directive, you know, it's great to see kind of those building blocks and Archer really being the one who's like, you know, I've been out there. I see the kind of damage this that, you know, these philosophies can prevent. And uh, yeah, it's it's great to see that sort of um, evolution. Well, and, and it, I mean, what it shows as well is for somebody like Malcolm to say this, the guy who's like, can we just blow some crap up all the time? <laughs> the you king know, of to, to have moved Exactly. To really have moved forward um, into this role of captain and, and really kind of living out these ideals, mm -hmm. to see that that's become his thought process shows just how much he's changed as a character. And I think it's it's well done and it's 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 not out of the blue. I mean, the the this is 10 years after the Romulan War. I mean, so that's mm -hmm. that's quite a few years uh, after the, the end of the series of Enterprise as well. And so. I mean, a lot has happened to these characters. They've been through a lot. They've been through a massive war. Um, so, But it's it's uh, not just changing the character, though, in the story, but also we get to see, there's a moment where we actually get to see Reed reflect on how he himself has changed when he realizes that in becoming a captain and thinking in that way, he's also given up the fact that he used to be very suspicious of everything as an armory officer, and he you can tell like he feels like he's lost something of himself and then mm -hmm. to Paul has to point out to him that no that's actually growth yeah absolutely well and and to that that great that great scene towards the end of the book where Malcolm is is talking about why what he thinks is happening he's laying out the plot scenario and you know to Paul and and Archer mm, they're kind of on the fence and he says look i i trust my people and immediately, because of the conversation that him and DePaul had had earlier in the book, she says, okay, I'm with you. And, and then Archer agrees as well. And I thought that it was fantastic to watch the way that these characters, you know, they know each other so well, but they're they're growing in their respect for each other and they're growing into their respective roles as well. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that was really fantastic. Um, Absolutely. You know, it, Especially with, like, Reed, because earlier in the book, he was kind of feeling like, oh, they don't really trust me as the captain of my own ship. You know, they got to send to Paul to kind of ride shotgun and make sure I'm doing okay. And, you know, that really wasn't it at all, but that kind of little bit of insecurity there. But then, you know, when it really comes down to it, they show him that, you know, no, we trust you. You got this. It's all good. Yeah. Well, and in it too, you can tell, uh, I think sometimes still that, that Archer would like to be the person in the middle of it all. And right. he's still even uh, in some ways getting used to his, his admiralcy and, and, and talk about, you know, I, and we just got to mention this, you know, usually bad morals, uh, I mean, but <laughs> seriously, Archer probably is the quintessential good admiral, um, mm -hmm. And, and so, especially somebody who was moved from captain to admiral, we don't see that all that often, um, in, in, at least in the televised show, and that go well. But hey, got to give Archer his props here for that. So, oh, absolutely, yeah. Chris, this is something that you had had talked about, so I, I kind of wanted you to lead us in here. You were just talking about this idea of of, of the Federation identity crisis, and. 
Um, what what was it specifically there in the book that that really um, got your interest and peaked in this area? Well, I think early on, at the beginning of the book, of course, we have this case of this colony that they're they're boomers basically. Did you know they're born in space, Matthew? Those boomers. Actually, you know, um, luckily Mayweather reminds us that he was 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 in space. Uh-huh. Was he? Um, and and, oh. and and yeah, and basically that he had been born in space. Oh, so I must it have... was nice to get that. I because I always forget. Yeah, I must have missed that time that he mentioned that. But apparently, yeah, these boomers <laughs> are born in space, and but we have this colony, and they are in Tellarite space, and they they. They don't want to move. They, they're there because they don't want to be part of this federation. You know, they want to be their own people. And the Tellarites are butting heads with the with Tapol and and our people because even though they're all together now as part of the federation, there's still there's that growing pain where they they don't want to work together yet. And so initially, you see that you see that sort of identity crisis for the federation of like are we united what does it mean for us all to be together tellerites and humans and andorians mm-hmm. and then beyond that as you get more and of course that gets resolved because the book jumps you know like a few months at a time and then a few days at a time and it takes place over the course of a year or so but as you get later on you start getting into all of this debate between the federalists and the planetarists is that how they've named them here and these different these different groups who they want different things for the federation you know and there is that debate of how much autonomy should each world have how much of the government should be centralized how should they deal with trade you know how should they deal with military and We've talked about this before. I think we've talked about it since the time we talked about a choice of futures, but this is at a point, and you have Section 31 involved here as well, and this is at a point where the Federation can go in different directions, and it can become like a very loose confederacy and a very free society that allows a lot of autonomy for its member worlds while working together for the greater good, or it can become a very dictatorial society where you actually have a very strong centralized government, which would end up being on Earth in the case of Star Trek. And that government would really be oppressing everyone else and trying to force everyone to stay together, which of course is completely impractical over interstellar distances, which is one of the things about Star Trek that you kind of have to suspend disbelief a little bit because Mm-hmm. A lot of what's talked about in this book, I'm trying to take it all in as gen- general, this is how we deal with our own society on Earth and the decisions that we make. Because if I really think about it as these worlds are really this far apart from each other, then you start to think like this is a little bit silly at times because these things actually don't matter over such great distances because there's no way that you would be able to hold them together or enforce anything in the first place. But but it's anyway, it's that identity crisis of what are we going to be that gets played out through the book that 
I think, as we were saying at the beginning, makes this story interesting to general Star Trek fans because, yes, it's an Enterprise book, but this is sort of what we wanted to see on the TV series and we didn't get because it ended after four seasons. The whole mm-hmm. jump ahead to Archer's speech at the end of These Are the Voyages wasn't enough. You know, like, how did they get to that point? That's what we wanted to know. So seeing that play out is interesting. Well, what it got and actually cut out, though, was it, it, it actually ends a lot like Greece. Um, <laughs> everybody just dances right. and sings about, we go together like, ding, ding, you know, it's, it's pretty much just like that. Um, Olivia Newton-John is. See, is, they should yeah. have, they should have faded out from that with the music going on. Then you pull out. Exactly. You pull out yeah. of the, the, the holodeck into the corridor of the Enterprise yeah. D, but you still <laughs> it, hear the exactly. music. Yeah. Yes. See, that's just that's what it that's what we had missed is that's how everybody comes together. They just have a big, huge musical number, right. and it's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think I think that was what was really interesting too was seeing how these worlds want to work together. I mean, you know, or don't want the Vulcans and the as well. right they you know the Vulcans and the humans have worked together for quite a long time. Um, and, and so they have a better idea, I think, of how to do this, but, you know, this is still relatively new for the Tellarites and the Andorians to be working together mm-hmm. like this and for the Tellarite, I mean, for the Andorians and the Vulcans to be working this closely. Um, and then of course, adding all of these other different worlds it you're just, you're compounding it, the problem as well. And, and we see the idea of kind of like pulling in something like Rigel that's not necessarily as um set in its ways as as like an andor or a vulcan or even a teller um all of those are are very much set in what they're going to be whereas something like rigel has just had a huge upheaval and completely changed so um and and how you add those to the federation and and what that looks like is is all being discussed here and i thought that that was a really interesting thing because Mm. you really are having a, a identity crisis you know what one thing there about rigel coming in is that i thought that that little bit showed the the road that the federation has to travel that we see later on in star trek about how they decide who can be admitted because when you get into the tng time period you get conversations about how like well this world isn't ready for federation membership yet and Mm -hmm. there's a point in this book where they're talking and they say that what's going on here may be symptomatic of something that we haven't been able to make peace with those who are right in our midst. Those are the, some of the Rigelians talking. And I was thinking that that actually becomes a prerequisite for Federation membership down the road, that if a world is at not at peace with itself, then it's sort of automatically disqualified from consideration. But at this point, the Federation is trying to grow itself. So they're much more lenient about these things. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, in the Rigel system, you have the, the Kalar, which are, uh, completely kind of cut off from the rest, you know, sort of by choice, but also kind of exiled there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel like, you know, in the next generation, we'd have a whole episode kind of debating about, you know, well, what's that about? Is that okay? Is that not okay? Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of, in this time period, the Federation is kind of just has to add numbers um, mm-hmm. to kind of become a legitimate 
actual thing that's going to fly. Um, whereas like later on when it kind of is this big, huge, uh, government, they can be a little bit more selective or kind of take that more into consideration. Right. Well, Chris, um, I think one of the other things that really comes out in this book that we see is just um, the political realities of the galaxy at this point. And in a lot of ways, uh, the way that they kind of reflect our world. Um, but I-, I wanted to ask you guys uh, this. Did any of y'all get the feeling that you had seen this kind of before and it's actually in the 24th century? And and, and I say that because, you know... Um, the Federation is forming and growing, and its enemies decide we need to, to form a, a union as well. And we all know that now in the novels is the Typhon Pact. Uh, I thought it was very funny that at the beginning of the Federation, its enemies were trying to do the same thing, not quite as successfully, but that the, the story was really mirroring the, t- the 24th century in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um it's kind of, uh, I feel like the Typhon Pact, you know, it's very much a kind of counter-federation. Um, and in some ways, kind of trying to pick at the federation and pull it apart, like uh, kind of engineering the uh, se- secession of Andor. Um, but at the same time, mostly just tr- kind of trying to counter that power with its own. Uh, whereas here, it's more like trying to keep the disorder and chaos um keep the status quo rather than, you know, having all these powers kind of join together and present a united front that would make, you know, kind of their criminal enterprises and their more lawless frontier type uh, dealings a little harder to do. Yeah. I think the difference with what we see here versus, say, the Typhon Pact too, though, is that those races that form the Typhon Pact are more traditional uh, spacefaring races or societies like we're used to in Star Trek, like Klingons, Cardassians, these types of societies. Of course, those aren't the ones in the Typhon Pact, but but they're that type of, of, of society. Whereas here we're dealing with criminals, you know, we're dealing with Orions and we're dealing with uh, traitors and, and, and criminals and slave runners. And they, they don't have internally it's it's just like crime syndicates trying to come together as right. opposed to groups that actually have governments and militaries and well-rounded societies of their own and so that's why here it doesn't work for them but whereas with the typhon pact they are actually able to to bring together that group yeah kind of trying to uh, create like protection rackets as opposed to uh right kind of an actual um set counter to the federation mm-hmm. yeah it was something that that i just thought was was a really interesting thing i was like wait a minute i, I feel like <laughs> i've seen this before um and, and so and then of course the the political ramifications of, of what we see especially with um we see this there on Rigel with you know these corporations kind of running things i, I felt like to me that that was very much just um oh this is this is a vague reference to america and just kind of the way that we run things uh, mm-hmm. these days with our you know our secrets we know your secrets and we're just going to kind of keep each other in check with our secrets 
Um, and then of course, very much that kind of Cold War feel, like, you know, the Russians, we've got these nukes, the US, we've got these nukes, and if we both fire them, we're all dead. Mm-hmm. So that's the way we keep the peace. Uh, very much that idea as well. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, you can do little things like invade Afghanistan, but, you know, if you really, you know, want to mess things up, well, we'll mess you right up right back. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like a lot of this book, and I won't go into it too much here on the show, but apart from the business side of it, I also see a lot of, a lot of this book feels like commentary on American politics over the past two or two years, four years. Uh, some of it seems so direct that there are moments where it feels more like Christopher L. Bennett's own commentary on what he's seeing play out in the news in the United States today versus the actual formation of the Federation itself. I mean, there, there are definitely parallels there and, and any sort of political dealings are going to have these similarities. There are moments though, where I felt like it was so, and maybe that's not what he's doing. And maybe that's me reading that into it as well, but it it really felt that way at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there are certain things that are, are kind of endemic to, um, pluralistic societies and creating governments. But yeah, there, I think there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, ripped from the headlines, so mm-hmm. to speak, uh, playing into this book for sure. Which is natural. I mean, that's, you write about what's going on. So. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, this was one of the things that I thought was really interesting too. Um, and it really works into these kind of, ideas that we see in the formation of the federation just kind of some of the the differing ideas i mean uh the federation has its its um progressive side and and then it has kind of a conservative side and kind of meshing all that together and some of these quotes uh from the book especially like um where they are talking to the rigelian leaders saval and, and archer and uh saval talks about this idea that you know people mutually consent to abide by these rules for their collective benefit. The idea that, you know, a- absolute unfettered freedom is just a ridiculous idea. We we band together for the collective good by allowing some of our freedoms to go by the wayside so that we mm-hmm. can have a mutually beneficial society, which is a really interesting idea and and um is uh, I guess you could almost say that you, you kind of have to have some sort of absolute belief that that's the best way to live um mm-hmm. it's it's just an interesting idea like you have to base that on something and and it's it's a uh, what you base it on i don't know other than this is what's best for the most amount of people especially if you're a vulcan mm-hmm. it's kind of the you know my rights end where yours begin or uh my right to swing my fist ends at your nose kind of thing like it's you know, yeah. we have personal freedoms, but we still have to live together. And, uh, you know, some of those freedoms for the collective good are need to be not curtailed, I guess, but kind of uh, respectful of everyone else's rights as well. It's interesting for me to see this debate play out in Star Trek and in this book because of the fact that with with the Rigel system itself in this book, there are so many planets and there are so many different species and races that are all Rigelians, but they're actually 
different from one another, and they all have to come together. And then the Federation has the same situation. Whereas you mentioned the Vulcans, the Vulcans, I feel, are a lot more like we are here in Japan, whereas the Federation and the Rigel system overall is a lot more like America. Whereas like you guys in, in the States have to deal with so many different groups and different interests and it's a melting pot and everyone has to come together and you see the struggle and you see how divided the society is and this debate is continuous whereas in japan the society runs much much more smoothly because what you're describing matthew about how you have rights up to a point but you also have to respect others and as a group you agree on a framework that works well for the entire society that's more how our society works here in Japan. So we don't have the kind of, of continuous strife that we see in the news from the U.S. or that we see here in this book with the, the Rigelians or the Federation. So, so seeing the debate on both sides here as they have the, the political discussions in this book is really interesting to me because I've experienced both ways of, of a society operating in real life and... So, so I, I have a personal experience of how this approach works and this approach works. And I know which one I prefer. And seeing it how it, it plays <laughs> out here is is maybe a unique experience for me anyway. Well, and two, you know, I think one of the things you see as well, um, the the juxtaposition of, of uh, you know, these, um, the Federation's enemies trying to come together in the Federation itself trying to get them together and the idea of really doing this for the benefit of others and for yourselves. Whereas people that are, are all about them and their own power, their plans tend to fall apart when they try to, you know, partner with anybody else because they're all about them, you know, um, and I think this idea of, of this completely selfish living, this, this this hunger for power really destroys and it really corrupts, um, you know, obviously absolute power corrupts absolutely. And and that's been seen over and over and over again. And so I, I think we really do see those political realities playing out today. And political parties care much more about their own power than they do their constituents or anything Definitely. else. Yeah. And so, um, and I don't really care what side of the aisle you're on because you both do it. So, and you know it. Um, and if you are um, not going to admit to that, then you're just a fool. Um, and I think it's it's something that really bothers me just about the political system. And, and we really kind of see that play out in this book. And that the idea... Uh, really doing the best for the most amount of people, um, and especially in a political system, that we're really trying to help those that we are elected to serve is a is a is a really nice idea. I just wish we saw it more in the real world, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I think maybe that's one of the things that we um, we do like when we look at Star Trek. We're like, man, whew, if we could only get there, that would be <laughs> right. really nice. Yeah. So. And I think the uh, the ultimate illustration of like the juxtaposition to that is the uh, the Saurian dictator in this novel, who's you know very obviously using um, trickery and coercion to get more people under his uh, under his rule, um, which is just the exact opposite of 
what the Federation is doing, which is, you know, coming together for mutual benefit and, and convincing people that it's actually going to be in their best interests to join together for strength. Whereas, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, uh, the, the Saurian dictator, uh, his idea is he just wants to rule the entire planet and then eventually more, uh, by the looks of it, um, just for his well, own personal yeah. power. Well, and the Rigelian first families, too, who are willing, <laughs> basically, when Garros realizes they don't really care. They just want power. They're right. willing to destroy their whole financial system, basically, just to be in power, even just of a smaller area, um, even if it's just the Rigel system. And so, yeah, you see it all over this book, these these plans and these schemes, these Machiavellian-type schemes that are just um, – imploding on themselves because uh they they can't handle it even even seeing it too with the orions and the three sisters mm -hmm. um they're all inner working against each other and uh, it, it just leads to ruin and so um it, it's it's really interesting and on top of that this this other idea was is kind of in here and it, and it has a lot to do with the trip storyline um fighting for a nation while losing its soul Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we saw this play out, um, to Paul even talks about this with Trip and the Vulcans before the Reformation and Trip seeing this happen with section 31. And even, you know, um, we see this play out in other Star Trek. Mm -hmm. Um, again, I thought that that was, reasons a... I love Deep Space Nine. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this, um, this is also one of the good. ripped from the headlines moments in the book for me as well, because it's exactly what's happening in the u.s right now with the you know protecting the nation but undermining its values at the same time right and and that you know we we can't we can't um protect what we want to protect by by actually betraying that very federation right. um which is what picard says in, in insurrection yeah. you know we um and you know uh, been known to call him pompous Picard, but <laughs> he was definitely right in that scene that you you can't you can't do this, yeah. um, and really then still be who you are because you know. Um, and I think I think this is this was the greatness of it. It was the beautiful playing out of that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, um, and Trip has all the best intentions, and he always has. You know, we saw it play out in the series. He he just doesn't always do um, necessarily the best thing, but he always had the best intentions and heart. And I think this struggle for Trip's soul is is a really interesting part of the book and a really interesting part of the series. Now, uh, we Dan, we were talking about this a little bit uh, on the other side of the page, but um, we already know where Trip's going to come out because the end of the Romulan War book already told us the end of him and Paul's story. Um, mm -hmm. That they end up on on Vulcan together with kids, um, uh, and so we already kind of know where this is going to go. But I think getting there is going to be a really interesting and just a really interesting journey. Yeah. So. Well, I love that he uh, he's kind of like, oh well, maybe if I stick with this section thirty one, I can uh, you know ride it out and and make sure they don't become corrupt and they you know keep on the on the good path and you know good job there trip we know all know that that worked out really well yeah it, well and it, it's so hard not to get sucked into whatever group you're a part of you know mm -hmm. and, and just become that you know 
they always say, you know, it, it, it's, it only takes one bad apple to ruin an entire barrel. And, you know, section 31 really is a whole barrel of bad apples <laughs> with maybe one, one good apple in it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, your, your odds trip are, are not an, are ever not in your favor well, to quote remember, another series. Section 31 has a zero tolerance policy towards good apples. <laughs> this is true. This is true. <laughs> um, which really plays into as well, I, and we see this in the book, uh, this idea that secrets and their ability to destroy everything because they always come out. I mean, the entire Rigelian system is based on knowing each other's secrets. Um and uh, I just thought that this was really interesting. So it's like it's like that iPhone app secret then, right? Where you, you can send people the messages of what you're doing. Yeah, or, you know, like Snapchat where you think it's going to be, you know, and somebody screenshots you and you're like, you son of a... <laughs> yeah. All right. Goodness. Well, go on with your serious <laughs> thought, Matthew. <laughs> I just thought that that was a really interesting point of the book that we keep seeing these secrets and people trying to hide their secrets and then mm -hmm. they keep coming out. We, and we, I mean, we see that with, um, you know, Archer's girlfriend in the story, um, um, Sedna. And it, again, with the whole Rigelian system with, uh, Mollerns, um, trying to keep their secrets as well. Um, the, the Orions and their plan upon plan upon plan. And, you know, uh, it, it's just insane. Mm -hmm. Um, they all just yeah, feel just like that time bombs really about to go off, you know. Like. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and it really, in the end, I mean, the it, it's the the axiom: the truth will set you free. It's it's just so much easier. And I think that that's the main difference here as well with the Federation and its founding and what it's trying to be, and everything else that we see around it. That they are trying to set up a system based on the truth. And truth, justice, and the galactic way. <laughs> and so instead of, you know, um, anything, uh, you know, lies and deceit and all those kind of things, they're, they're trying to be transparent, which is, you know, um, them trying to get Rigel into the Federation and, and trying to figure out exactly what this system is. What are their secrets? And, and, and are they ready to be admitted into our federation at this mm -hmm. point it, it's a really interesting conversation yeah and i find it really interesting that that debate is kind of going on while they're presenting themselves to rigel because yes rigel's kind of seeing these two sides and saying like uh what are you trying to get us into here you know what are you exactly and they're like well you know we're kind of united i promise <laughs> well I think we're like semi united. Yeah. Well, the United -ish feels so good. Of planets. United ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Semi united and it feels so good. I told you, Dan, I, I can't keep Matthew from singing on the show. <laughs> and I don't want to. You see it firsthand. Wow. <laughs> Dan, you mentioned the Saurian dictator earlier. And although the Saurian storyline is separate from the Rigelian storyline, I think what's similar here is that this is the normal mode of operation for politicians in general and in our world as well. And so the reason why the Rigelians are so suspicious of the Federation's motives just stems from the fact that you become so conditioned that the idea that someone wants to come in and actually help you 
and do something that is for the betterment of the society is so foreign to people that you're naturally mm-hmm. suspicious. And so yeah, and you're constantly wondering, well, what's the catch here? You know, really? Okay, no, what do you really there's want? even the view in here in the book of the Klingon view of the formation of the Federation, which is that right. the, the Terrans conquered the Andorians and the Vulcans and pulled them into their empire. So, so everyone ha- has <laughs> this view of you're always trying to conquer or you're always at least trying to get something for your own benefit. You're never trying mm-hmm. to do something to help. And I think that as much as the Federation internally having the struggle to figure out what they are going to be as they try to expand, they face this challenge as well. And the the Rigelian system is a good choice here because of the upheaval internally and the way things operate there with the, with the secrets that we're talking about and with the business and with the trade and with the crime syndicates as well to, to put this challenge to the Federation. Yeah. And I, I thought the, the kind of alternate viewpoints on what's going on were great because, uh, you know, they're not wrong from the Klingon point of view, you know, like that's, that's your mindset. That's how you approach right. That's your uh, mindset, everything yeah. you see and, and uh, yeah, like you say, it's it's such a foreign concept that you know people would actually come together for mutual benefit. Um, but I think it's important. I think it's important in a Star Trek story to point that out, though, because we're accustomed to the twenty fourth century, and even the twenty third century, but especially the twenty fourth, where if someone has that reaction to the Federation, you as the viewer, as a Star Trek fan, feel like well what are you worried about? Come on, we're the Federation. I mean, everybody in the galaxy knows that mm-hmm. we're nice. And it seems too easy at that <laughs> point, right? So so I like your pointing out that in the early days, it wasn't like that. It, everyone was suspicious. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And I mean, it's uh, if I can just kind of bring in Babylon 5 here um, for a second. I absolutely no. love... <laughs> oh, <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I absolutely love the the one thing they do is uh, they kind of uh, show, you know, spoiler alert, if anyone's ever going to watch Babylon 5, uh, the Earth government. Kind I of like that how you said, you didn't say if anyone hasn't yet seen it. You said if anyone's ever going to watch it. <laughs> uh, no. Nope. Um, okay, go ahead with your. It's kind thought. of one of the one of the things like they become dictatorial and uh, and and that sort of thing. And a lot of people kind of forget that. Uh, in the 30s, Germany, for the time, yeah. was a quote-unquote a first world nation. Like, that didn't, that term didn't exist at the time. Like, they were heavily in debt from the war and that kind of thing, but they were a modern European nation at the time, and Hitler was able to take power. So I feel like a lot of people say things like, oh, that could never happen now, or that can't happen to my society and I think the Federation is kind of the ultimate expression of that, because by the time you get to the 24th century, you say, no, that could never happen to the Federation. Uh, but here, especially in the 22nd, right at the beginning, you know, they're at a crossroads with infinite numbers of, of different paths they can take. And uh, some of those paths are pretty dark if they let it happen. Yeah, and it really, I mean, it it it's it goes to that whole idea of of um, you know what's what's the soul of the Federation going to be, um, and and it it really plays out well um, in the struggle we again are, are seeing with Trip, and of course the struggle that all of these characters are having, like 
we talked about with with uh, you know what's the the identity crisis the Federation is kind of having the the idea of the the Prime Directive what's Starfleet really going to be like as we're moving forward and all of that and I think this really comes down to this something that the book does well is character arcs from Archer to Paul. And then as we talked about the way that Kirsten has been really taking those Voyager characters and making something of them, I mean, ugh, the <laughs> thought that I would ever have liked uh, Chakotay as a character <laughs> was, was mind-boggling to me. And yet, in, in his in her books, I think he's fantastic. Harry Kim is, a, is an enjoyable, likable character there. Um, it, there's so much done. Yeah, exactly. And, and so... Bennett has done the same things with a character like uh, Malcolm or a Mayweather or a Hoshi, really, mm-hmm. really bringing out what was in these characters and, and making them something. You know, I think that it was fantastic to see um, some of the great quotes we got from Mayweather um, when he was defending the Federation to his captors. Um, I loved watching Malcolm struggle with being a captain because he's not the most personal i mean he reminds me a lot of this the, the kind of like an early picard might have been because he's not personal oh, that's a good point with people mm. you know um he, he's like a proto picard um and uh I, I love that as well um and and i think too um you know watching this growth in archer of, um, you know, struggling with, have I given up so much of my future because I've been worried about the what's what's out there instead of what's right in front of me, um, which I thought, to me, was a very poignant lesson um, that I'm so worried about what's going on, what might happen in the future that I might miss what's right in front of my face. Um, and as human beings, man, don't we do that all the time? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So what did you guys think about the actual character arcs in here? That's, you know, Archer's situation and the fact that he's he doesn't have a lady friend in his life. He's really <laughs> hooked on his work and um he does have a little a little moment in here. But it but it feels like in the end he does come around and and he finally asks Danny out and do you guys want to see that go somewhere? I'm kind of, yeah, I'm curious to see where that goes. Um, again, speaking of, of an episode that, you know, wasn't that spectacular, um, her character from Daedalus in season four, kind of one of the few misses of that season. Um, yeah, it was interesting to see her. And, uh, while I don't think they did a lot with her character this book, I'm kind of curious to see, uh, what they do with her, um, coming up. Yeah, I found it to be an unexpected combination, personally. It's good, you know, mining, like you said, from that episode, but I didn't see that coming. I actually, the, I kind of wanted him to, to end up with the, the Rigelian, honestly, just because it would have been a little bit more interesting, I thought, because I, I um, seeing, you know, that kind of cross species relationship you know mm-hmm. um, and and to have archer be the first person to really have that other than trip and paul i thought would have been really really interesting mm-hmm. um and it made sense too because Ar- i feel like archer is is one of those characters where you can really explore the idea so i was a little disappointed that it didn't go that way i i understand i guess why you know it, it but it, it felt a little bit more like i don't know um, too much of the trope. Mm-hmm. 
and, and I thought it would have been a little bit more satisfying for me if he had kind of ended up with Sedna um, and, and pursued that relationship a little bit more, especially in the idea of forgiveness and moving forward and those kind of things. But also just it opens up a lot of great story possibilities that the, the thought that, you know, an admiral in Starfleet could could, um, you know, be also be one of the first big uh, characters on the scene to to have a cross species relationship mm-hmm. were you guys uh kind of disappointed that you know she ended up betraying him like when they kind of got together i was kind of like oh please don't let this be a betrayal thing i don't know i kind of i felt from the very beginning and this is another thing about the book that disappointed me a little bit is that i felt that the plot twists in the book were a little bit too transparent. Like there was really not much of anything that caught me off guard. And I was suspicious of her from the very, very moment that she kissed (laughs) Archer. Uh, I knew who the gunman was who attempted the assassination all the way from the very beginning. I even made a note the first time we encountered him that, okay, he's up to something. This is why he's scanning Archer. So, uh, yeah, I wasn't really surprised that that uh, she was involved in betraying him. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the one thing about that was, was kind of her motives, that it wasn't, you know, just a cut and dried, um, you know, bad kind of thing going yeah. on. That, that was kind of, it redeemed it a little bit. But I was, yeah, like you said, I was suspicious right at the beginning, as soon as she was well, kind of showing where... interest. <laughs> Right. That that's where I really felt like it would have meant more um to the storyline if he had uh, pursued then a relationship with her. Um it it would have made mm-hmm. it not seem so tropish like oh I had to betray you because you know like I I can't help it, you know. It's um, what I do. That, it's yeah, <laughs> I, I you know, my family and yada yada yada, <laughs> we had a bisque. Um it it just yeah, I, I I felt like I would have enjoyed a, just a little bit more of that if if it had if it had gone um, that she actually did like him, you know. But right. she's also being forced to do this, and that makes it a little bit more interesting than just well, you know, I seduced you and I kind of had to. And well, so. I think she does admit at the end that she does like him because she said she couldn't mm-hmm. really go through with the plan because he was so nice, but. But when she initiated everything at that point, it very much was just, that's why she was there. And it was, it was after the fact that she realized that maybe there's something, something more there. And as Steve Jobs would say, one more thing, (laughs) Um, I'd I'd like to just uh, briefly talk about the coda to the book. And and if you haven't already, we didn't say this, but we're spoiling the crap out of this book. So if you're still listening... (laughs) I feel sorry for you and you haven't read it. Um, but the very end of the book, what did you guys think about what Bennett brings in? I uh, I kind of thought that was brilliant because uh, I remember actually that was one of the earlier episodes of Enterprise that I really, really enjoyed. Um, and it was kind of really cool to see that space station and that technology again. And, uh, you know, um, Roxanne Dawson <laughs> does that creepy computer voice so well and mm-hmm. I totally heard her uh, voice uh, at the end there. I thought that was great. I'm That made me really excited to kind of see what was coming next. You know, like the first, the uh, Choice of Futures had the 
the mute aliens um, from that one episode, which I thought was great. So it's kind of nice to see another big bad threat kind of looming on the horizon. Yeah, your inquiry was not recognized. <laughs> Final line of the book. and I can't do that, Dave. I, th- I thought it was really cool, too. I mean, it was completely unexpected, but now I'm really looking forward to seeing if, and I hope that this is going to be explored in the third book in Rise of the Federation, because if it's not, mm. then Christopher, you're a real tease for putting that in here. But I, I thought it was really cool because <laughs> Dead Stop is such a great episode and it's a great mystery as to why that was there. And now the idea that there are lots of these spick and span, clean white space station repair stations out there. And they, they clearly are there for a malicious purpose. And of course we know from dead stop part of what that purpose is because of, of what they do with Travis, but we don't really know what the bigger plan is of like, why is it there? And why are they trying to, to lure humanoids in? and hook them up. So, yeah. so it was a cool coda. I liked it. And the, uh, the tentative title for the next book, I guess is, um, Christopher Bennett said was uncertain logic, which, uh, you know, I, I just assumed, Oh, it has to do with the Vulcans. Okay. But you know, logic could have to do with computers and how computers mm-hmm. think. So that's kind of made me wonder, Ooh, you know, what, whose uncertain logic are we going to be exploring in the next book? And that could play into the whole trip to pole relationship as well. So mm-hmm. that title could that title could apply to a number of threads that we can see pulled through the next book. You know, I, I thought it was a it was a great tease for the for the next book. Um, you know, it it was I remember that episode too because it was one of the first times that Enterprise was showing you that it wasn't going to be afraid to do continuity. Um, in direct Absolutely. continuity right. for what happened last mm-hmm. week. I mean, that was that was even one of those times where they were last time on Star Trek Enterprise, and it was it was wonderful. I mean, I I just rejoiced when that happened, um, yeah. and the thought that there are more of these stations out there freaks me out. So um, I am interested because again, Chris is mining the series and not just kind of like creating this this feeling that we all kind of thought uh, this might go you know this series might go and in fact chris when we talked about this the the next book coming out when we heard what the title was going to be i think we automatically jumped to vulcans immediately as well well. we would never have even thought of pulling out the the random space station in the one episode in the first season. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that, like, I remember a lot of people kind of complaining about things like that. Like, oh, this is not explained, you know, what, where did this come from? Um, but it's, it's almost like the creators left these little nuggets for authors to pick up and run with. Like, wow, you know, you come up with the story. Where did this come from? And I don't know. That's really exciting. I'm, I'm excited to uh, have that explored. And let's not forget that we also get to find out the origins of the Venus drug in this book, which was a great (laughs) callback to Mud's Women. It's one of those things that he does so subtly, too, that, you know, um, and it works so well. Like, if you're not paying attention, you might miss it because it's it's Mm -hmm. one of so many things that happens in the series. So, uh, or it's one of so many things that happens in the book that I really appreciate 
uh, about uh, Chris is he'll just kind of throw in something. Um, and you know, it's really for the, the person who knows Star Trek really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes his books well worth reading. And the thing is like, none of it is just for the sake of doing it either. I mean, like that drug to counter the Orion females influence, like that has a real impact on the plot. Uh, I think Christopher Bennett on the Trek BBS board once said, um, when someone was talking about continuity porn and, you know, how they don't really like just random stuff thrown in, I think he said something like, um, I use continuity to serve the plot and never the the other way around, right? I don't do continuity for continuity's sake. I do it because it actually moves things forward and makes sense to the plot of the story. I think, um, this is a great time, Chris, to, to talk about maybe just some final thoughts and, and give our, uh, ratings for the book as well. So, Dan, what are your final thoughts? Uh, well, I was largely uh, very impressed with the novel. Um, like I said, I've, I've generally enjoyed um, most of everything that Christopher Bennett's written. Uh, I really liked the continuity come to, coming together uh, and the character work that he does. Um, trying to decide on a rating to give it. I'm going to give it nine venus drug pills oh nice i like it that's gonna make the book very attractive to readers yeah i'm already more attracted to it as we speak (laughs) well i i enjoyed the book as well it's a very i talked about how i felt that the plot twists were rather transparent and and I still feel that way. But at the same time, it's a very complex book because there's so much going on. And I like the discussion that's in the book. I, I, I still can't decide if I like this book better than A Choice of Futures, though. I kind of like A Choice of Futures a bit better, I think. But there, there's a line at the end of the book where the presidential candidate is is withdrawing from the race And I think that in the speech, he sums up the point of the book, which he says, rather than rushing to an extreme of centralization or of individualism, we must find a balance between the two, a balance we can only arrive at by working in partnership with our political opposition. And it applies to the Federation internally, and it applies to the Rigelians in that system, and it applies to just us as people and the message of Star Trek. And so... I thought that summed everything up pretty well. And I'm going to give this book seven Saurian hot tubs. Oh, goodness. <laughs> we didn't even get into the Saurians like that. <laughs> oh. Well, um, you know, I, I'm I'm with both of you. I think I, I really enjoy Chris's books. Um, Christopher Bennett has a has a amazing way of, of taking continuity and making it really work. Um Department of Temporal Investigations is is a classic example of that. Um, weaving a story that just blows my mind when I read it because everything works together so well. Um, I, I I wonder what his spreadsheet looks like to um, try and keep all these story points in line here because um, really, and I mean this literally, each part of the story has at least three different things going on in it if not like 10 or 12 
So it does take a careful reading, but I think that that makes it a fantastic story. Um, and it, and it, it speaks to just the complexity of trying to create something like the Federation. I mean, it's not going to be an easy process. I mean, whoever said this was going to be easy didn't know what they're talking about. Um, so I think it makes for a great book. Um, and there are some things that, that um, I was like, Huh. Or as we talked about, I, I would have liked to seen maybe better, with, especially in, in the Archer storyline. Um, but on a whole, this is a great book. And um, I love the Enterprise series. I'm so glad that Pocket is going to be continuing it. And I'm glad that they've got Christopher helming it. I mean, I think they picked the right guy for the job the same way that they did um, with uh, Kirsten Beyer and Voyager. Um, and now if they could just pick the right person for the Deep Space Nine book line, I would be ecstatic. So I'm going to be rating this book 8 out of 10 Maris Seductions. Ooh. So, Ooh. All right. We've got Seduction, we've got <laughs> Venus Drug, and we've got Hot Tubs in our ratings. So... So. This better. It's a saucy mix. <laughs> I mean, we're getting a little cheeky here. So the book just oh, became really a lot is. more exciting. <laughs> it's sufficiently exciting, Dan. <laughs> exactly. Well, All right. Well, Dan, tell everyone um, where they can, can follow you online, um, where your website is, and uh, where they can see your reviews. Okay, well... Um, uh, like you mentioned, I maintain my own kind of Treklet blog, um, and you can find that www.treklet.com. Uh, www uh, it's kind of a redirect URL, takes you right there. Um, my reviews of new releases also get uh, republished on trekcore.com as well, which is uh, really exciting. That was kind of a development that happened last year. Um, and yeah, I, I have Twitter, um, at Treklet Reviews, uh, Facebook.com slash Treklet Reviews. Uh, pretty easy, pretty much across the board there. So yeah, if, uh, if you want to follow my reviews, I also have news about upcoming books and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, you can find that all online. Pretty easy to find. <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was a pleasure to get to have you on the show finally. I can't wait to have you back to talk about some other books we, are, we already have lined up as well. And so um, I appreciate your reviews. As somebody who has to review books as well, it's always great to have another opinion. And so um, I appreciate your all your work, too, uh, for just getting the, the books out there to people, uh, making them more visible to Star Trek fans. Uh, I, I think it's really important. And so I really do thank you for all the work you do and can't wait to have you back. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you very much. And, and likewise, I always check out your reviews. And uh, like I said, I've been listening to Literary Treks from the very beginning, and I love the work you guys do. Uh, it's very much appreciated. Um, and it's It's been a lot of fun to be on the show, and I'm really looking forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Dan. Awesome. Thank you. Well, Matthew, it was really fun having Dan with us today. It was it's it's great when we discuss books together. But like you said, I I really like having another opinion. Having three of us together works really well. Yeah, it really does. I I really enjoyed it. I think it worked um, well. I I'm glad we will be having 
him back soon um, to talk some other books with us. And yeah, I think it's it's great. You know, like you said, just having a different opinion really does help the show. Um, and uh, this is definitely a book that you needed more than two people talking about because there's so much going on in it. Definitely. Yeah. I know I was reading it and I was thinking about what what are we going to talk about? And when, when I read or watch episodes or whatever, I always have on the outliner up and I actually make outlines as I go. So I had a lot of points there, but I was still thinking, okay, how are we going to approach this book? I'm really glad Dan is with us today. Yeah, it worked out so well. And, and, um, and this is a, a fantastic book. I really did enjoy it. I, I think everybody will enjoy this book. And so, um, and, and I, I want to encourage everyone, you know, we are going to be getting more enterprise books, but we won't continue to get them if you don't go out and buy them. And and we have had a great run of uh, bestsellers here. So let's continue that trend. Absolutely. Well, Tower of Babel was great to discuss, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on the network this past week. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Montgomery Scott. It's really just their to tell a story that they couldn't tell with Kirk or Spock or McCoy. This is true. An episode where Kirk is framed for the murder of a hooker would be... Right. Awesome. Completely different. It would be awesome, but... (laughs) Earl Grey. Ships of TNG Part 2. Commander Riker, why would you protect the inferior (laughs) ship? I want its treasure. I want the other ship. Darren, how long have you been keeping that one in your pocket? You yeah, did not I like tell that. us. That was good. Do a Frankie. <laughs> the Ready Room. Scientific Method. She tells the the the, guy, the woman that comes on the bridge, and she's like, "Well, it doesn't, you know, it it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to drive into these stars. It's going to be great." Like it's like <laughs> I'm just like the orb. Till death do us part. His are, are are very quizzical in nature. They they're of the scientist. They're of the somebody who. Who is willing to accept? Okay, where? What is this reality? What's going on? She's just all like, "Tell me what to do right now!" You know, like, she, right? She, there's nothing spiritual about her. To the journey. One versus doctor's orders. I was working full time on top of being a full time student, and I listen. I don't, I don't want to hear your excuses. Okay, I don't want to hear them. <laughs> Like, life was happening and... A great man once told me, if something's important to you, you make the time. Warp 5. Undeveloped Enterprise Stories. But the idea here is that Porthos would become intelligent and would be the only member of the crew capable of communicating with a canine alien. So even Hoshi apparently couldn't figure out this dog language. Commentary, Trek stars. Fifth Bull, Shemira. I, I loved. I'd love to see an X Files one shot with Scully and and the hookers. With you know? Scully and the hookers, yeah. that's a great name for that's a what band. We can call it Scully and the hookers. <laughs> Melodic tracks. Five musical favorites. You know, I don't completely hate the opening theme. I, I just really think that Archer's theme should be the opening credits. Continuing mission. Star Trek Axelar with Alec Peters. That's what we posit. We say it makes sense that at this point, we know it's from it, from TOS. They're not integrated, so our crews are not integrated. Uh, and, and we make a point of that. We don't avoid it. We make a point of it. And in Prelude to Axanar, they talk about that. Literary Treks. 
IDW Alien Spotlight Part One. Well, Chris, it's okay because they can see the Romulans from their house. That's right. So, from space, you know, you betcha. You know what? That's okay. I can see the Romulans from my uh, from my starship. It's gonna be fine. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a wide variety of places, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. And if you haven't visited our new home in iTunes, be sure to do that. We have had... A great development with Apple. Apple has invited us in as a key provider to the iTunes store and has given us our own section within the store. And we currently have one massive artist page, and then we have 19 pages altogether, breaking down all of our content. We're highlighting uh, different themes each week as well to help you find older episodes of our shows that maybe you haven't heard. And it's really easy to get there. All you need to do is go to itunes.com slash trekfm and that will take you directly to our site inside the iTunes application. And we really thank Apple for extending that special invitation to us. And and we thank you guys too, because it's, it's thanks to all of you listening to the shows that Apple recognized us and extended the invitation in the first place, because it's something that they, they only do for a, a few key providers. So we really appreciate all your support of the shows as well. Matthew, since our last show, we've had some feedback from listener Christopher Baca in San Antonio, and uh, he wrote to uh, say thank you for us talking about one of his recent letters here on the show. But he also said, what do you guys think of the Shatnerverse novels? I really liked Ashes of Eden, and I thought The Return would have made a pretty interesting follow-up to Generations. It would have made up for how awful that movie was. Okay, well... I have to disagree there. I don't think Generations was an awful movie. I actually quite like it, but I know many fans feel that way. So I understand where Christopher's coming from here. He also says, we never really got the great Picard-Kirk team up that we were promised in the film's promotion. I also liked the whole Mirror Universe arc from the Shatner books as well. Have you listened to Ron Moore's commentary to yesterday's Enterprise? Uh, yes, I have. That was actually a, a really good one. And so, Matthew, what do you think about this? Now, you are more familiar with the Shatnerverse books than I am. What are your thoughts on this? You know, I have read all the Shatnerverse books. Um, most of them are very good, and I say that. I just really enjoy them. One, you don't have to know anything else about any of the other books. You know, there's no continuity from the 24th century you need to know about at all. And Honestly, I really did like the way that he brings Kirk back to life. I thought it was kind of a, a crazy, smart idea. And, you know, Borg nanoprobes, the Borg joining forces with the Romulans, trying something new, uh, much in the same way where the Borg had joined forces with Voyager, you know, against Species 8472. I mean, it made sense because we will would seen that. So um, I agree completely The Picard... Kirk team up was lame in generations. Um, I, I don't think it lived up to its potential as a storyline, but I really just think that had to do with Brandon and Ron being tired and giving their all to um, all good things. And by the time they got to generations, they were just tapped out at that point. They hadn't had any rest. Um, I, I honestly think that maybe they shouldn't have been the ones writing the story anyway. Um they they you probably should have brought in maybe a Nick Meyer or something to get you uh, 
into generations. It would have helped. Anyway, yeah. that's, I mean, we're armchair quarterbacking. That's what geeks <laughs> do best. Um, so I, well, it was I intense. Like I mean, it was intense. They had so much going on at that time. And, and that's, I mean, that was a lot of stress on them. And I think they did a good job in the end. Generations definitely could have been a better movie. And it definitely uh, could have had a better Kirk Picard team up and a better closing for Kirk himself. But but I don't think it was an awful movie at all. I, I, I kind of enjoy it. But I, I think that uh, eventually here on Literary Treks, we will get around to the Shatnerverse novels at some point. I would certainly uh, enjoy exploring those and talking about those. So, Christopher, thanks for your message. And for everyone else, if you would like to send us feedback, you can do that in several ways. You can go to our website at trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and that will come to both Matthew and me by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website, or you can go to our forums at trek.fm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show, about the novels, the comics, anything about Star Trek. And if social media is your thing, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and also on Twitter, where we're tweeting away about Star Trek all the time under username trekfm. Now, Matthew, when you're not, uh, you know, doing those exercises to build up your resistance to Orion pheromones, where can people find you? Well, Chris, uh, you can find me at uh, the Twitter, uh, you know, Matt Rushing Zero Two. You know, it's 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 a not really exciting name. I, I just, you know, but I wanted people to be able to actually find me, you know, instead of being like, I am um, Bobby Soxer Part Two. You know, like, what does that even mean? <laughs> Well, um, I mean, uh, we we don't want to talk to that Matt Rushing zero one guy because he doesn't know anything about Star Trek. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, and of course, you can find me doing the orb with you, Chris, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And I do have my own personal blog at forty two life in between dot wordpress dot com. I do movie reviews, other book reviews, uh, talk about things that just are on my mind. Um, and so you can join me there as well. Now, Chris, when you're not sitting in a nice Saurian sauna, um. Well, completely um, comfortable as as all Saurians are. Um, where can we find you? <laughs> well, I'm comfortable there, but I get a little bit nervous because there's a lot of germs in that sauna, <laughs> as we find out. And so, you know, I do an alcohol rub down when I get out of there. It's just a rumor, Chris. It's just a rumor. <laughs> well, it might be just a rumor, but you know, I went with it when I got back to the ship. You know, I said, I, I, I got to go do the whole decon chamber rubdown thing. And um, Commander Hoshi said that she could help. So, Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> now, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere on social media under that same username and on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, besides doing the orb with you, Matthew, I also do Warp 5, where we talk exclusively about Enterprise. I have an interview show about science and creative and other topics kind of related to Star Trek called Matter Stream. And I do Continuing Mission, which is all about fan series and independent productions. And then on the Ready Room every week, I host along with other hosts from all around the network. And we talk about Star Trek news and all five live action Star Trek series. So check out those shows and find out what we're talking about there as well. Before we let you go, I'd also like to remind you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com, the best source for audiobooks online. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. 
Choose any book you like, one of Una's Doctor Who books, as we talked about news, or any Star Trek book, or anything else you want. And if at the end of the trial period you decide not to stick with Audible, there's nothing to lose because you get to keep that audiobook. But by supporting Audible, you'll be helping us keep literary treks going. So go over to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and try it out today. And we really thank Audible for their support of literary treks and the network. One more thing you can do to help us keep Literary Treks coming to you each week is to make a donation to the network. And I'd like to give a shout out to listener Greg Molenby, who just made a donation. We really appreciate your help, Greg. And your contributions to the network help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth. Because although our shows are free for you to download, they're not free for us to produce. And we really appreciate your help in keeping everything going. If you go over to trek.afilm slash donate, you'll find different contribution levels to choose from, as well as some original alien illustrations. And those are available as art prints and badges. So you can mix and match, choose what you want. Again, that's at trek.afilm slash donate, and we really do appreciate your support in helping keep the network going. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.